The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich, and welcome to Rebel Yell Talk Radio. Tonight, the story the professors don't want you to know. The true story of 100,000 black soldiers fighting for the Confederacy hidden uh, April Fool. It's still Civil War Talk Radio, and we're still confining ourselves to history supported by evidence. Tonight, we'll look at some firsthand evidence of what it was like to fight for the Confederacy as we talk with Julianne Mahegan and David Mahegan, editors of Record of a Soldier in the Late War, the Confederate Memoir of John Wesley Bone. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building, on the campus of East Carolina University. As always, speaking just for me, not for ECU or the History Department or anyone in the UNC system. And I know likewise our guests will speak just for themselves tonight. Uh, I'm not alone here in the Brewster building tonight, as I am most Wednesday evenings, this first day of April, April Fool's Day, 2015. Uh, They are changing the light. The light fixtures throughout the building, putting some new energy-efficient lights in, and so I asked them to do my office first. They've done that, and now they're out in the 
the hallway outside the door. I've got the door closed, but I can hear a lot of banging and clashing and, and uh, work as workers try to change all the light fixtures in one evening while the rest of the staff are away. Hopefully, we'll get it done. It is a uh, beautiful night in Greenville, North Carolina, and it's the first spring pretty much since I've come here to North Carolina, 12 years now, with no uh, no youth soccer, high school soccer, other soccer stories to share with you. Uh, the rampants of Rose High uh, women's soccer team played a tough 1-1 tie with First Flight High School uh, out on the Outer Banks last night. It was a home game, but I wasn't there because my daughters have flown the coop and moved on. So uh, no youth soccer, no Rose uh, high school soccer, nothing to tell you about, just Civil War news. And of course, always the latest in CU academic uh, fantasy uh, fantasy worlds. This coming, this, this current uh, semester, we are replacing six of the department chairs in our College of Arts and Sciences, including me. I'm to step down and have more time to read about the Civil War and teach it. And the problem is we've got six chairs, most of whom are interims, who can't be, couldn't be replaced because the EEO office said you can only have a search if you have a diverse pool of candidates. And that meant a national search, an outside search. And the response internally was we don't have any money to hire someone new. We have to appoint someone already here. And EEO said, well, that's fine as long as you have a diverse pool, but the departments aren't diverse. We have a lot of white male faculty, as in most older departments. And it's gone back and forth for four years. Uh, you must have an outside search. We can't afford an outside search. Uh, and finally this year, the logjam broke. They allowed searches to replace the interim chairs, and we've got six of them going. I was at meetings all day today interviewing various chair candidates. It's been a lot of fun. As much fun as the comic relief of the current bill in our state legislature that would mandate all professors teach four classes a semester. World-famous heart surgeon inventing things to save lives? Nope, got to teach four sections of introbiology. Uh, fortunately, everybody assumes this bill is just grandstanding and will go away, but uh, it, it's a sign of the, the low esteem in which we are held here in higher ed these days. Anyway, uh, we are held in high esteem here in Civil War Talk Radio because we are dealing with uh, a real topic, a real historical topic, one that we're all interested in and here to talk about tonight. Uh, we've got lots of good shows coming up in the next few weeks as well. Uh, finally got the spring schedule more or less solidified. Next week, April 8th, we'll have Justin Salonik uh, with his brand new book, uh, a new graduate from uh, the Civil War uh, graduate student factory of Stephen Woodward at, at Texas Christian University. Uh, Dr. Salonik's book is Engineering Victory, the Union Siege of Vicksburg. We'll be talking with him next week. Then we've got John Fox, uh, airline pilot by day, author of Stewart's uh, Ride by Night. And he'll talk about Jeb Stewart and his ride around McClellan. On the 22nd, a week after that, uh, Adam Dean joins us. He has a book on uh, uh, an agrarian republic. It, it 
it's too hard to describe. You'll have to listen in and find out just what's going on with that. Uh, Matt Hulbert will be with us the following week. He's editor of a new book on guerrilla warfare in the Civil War. And then we've got, uh, in May, Tom Parson from the Corinth Civil War Interpretive Center. And he also has a book, uh, Work for Giants, which I believe is the Vicksburg campaign. I've got it on the shelf and haven't started it yet. Uh, but it's highly recommended, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Maybe it's Corinth. I apologize in advance uh, for not knowing my own uh, authors coming up. And then on May 13th, Brian Jordan, who was with us a couple years ago, talking about South Mountain. This time it's Marching Home, Union Veterans, and their unending civil war. So lots of interesting stuff coming up. Hope you can join us for those shows. Uh, you can find out about them on www.impedimentsofwar.org, where you can click on the PayPal button and donate cash to me to be used to pay my taxes or buy chocolate chip cookies or uh, pay for airfare to go to Civil War sites, anything I want. It's not a tax-deductible donation, just a gift to me. Uh, but theoretically, and in practice often, really is used to buy the books we talk about on the show or resubscribe to Civil War publications like the Civil War Monitor or uh, uh, the Journal of the Civil War Era, all things we all like to read and keep up with uh, current publications from those those uh, periodicals. Also coming up, uh, a reminder in May is the renewal of the This Hallowed Ground Civil War Tour, formerly conducted by Matterhorn Travel, which wrapped up its affairs with the retirement of Ken Block last year, but it has been transferred whole to Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. And so if you're interested in a really well-organized and very interesting tour of Civil War sites in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, uh, contact Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours and come and join us. I will be uh, the guest lecturer, the busman's holiday, and we have a really nice bus, I will say, for these travels. We stay in nice places and have some pretty decent meals, but most of all, get to meet some of the people you've heard from on the show who are rangers at these historical sites, written books that you've read, and uh, most important, see the sites where these events actually happened. So I hope uh, some of you can uh, join us. Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours is the place to contact if you want to come along on this year's This Hallowed Ground Tour in May of 2015. Well, tonight we join a tour of duty with Confederate Private John Wesley Bone, who wrote a memoir that is now published and available in between covers from Chinkapin Publishers. It is edited by Julianne Mahegan and David Mahegan, and they are our guests tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Julianne and David, are you there? We're here. Yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, we th- this is a remarkable book, uh, the, this memoir of a Confederate soldier, a lot of memoirs are out there still that, that people aren't familiar with that are in 
uh, archives and county historical societies, or in many cases in private hands, still in the attic or the, uh, the, the curio cabinet of some family. And sometimes they get discovered by uh, professional historians looking for that sort of thing. Uh, other times, uh, the families themselves realize they're, they're holding on to something of value to the world, and they make it known. Uh, how did you come across this manuscript? Well, it was in the family uh, all along. There was a copy in the, at home um, that I grew up seeing all my life, and as an adult, I had it with me after I moved from North Carolina to Massachusetts, and I read from it from time to time, uh, but mostly it just stayed in, stayed in the drawer. What, what's your relationship to John Wesley Bone? He's my great-grandfather. So this was, when you say the memoir was in your family, was this the original... Uh, manuscript that he wrote? No, the handwritten manuscript um, seems to have been lost or discarded, but in doing our research, we learned that two different typed transcripts were made from the original, one around 1918 and another one in 1938. It was after 1938 that the handwritten copy seems to have been discarded or lost. John Wesley Bone wrote this in 1904 when he was sick, um, feeling that he was going to die, and uh, wrote it over a period of, uh, apparently, of weeks or months, about 30,000 words, 35,000 words. And then he felt a bit better. He took strength, he felt better, and he lived until 1936. Uh, dying at the age of 94. Uh, so the document lay in the family, um, and uh, Julianne says it was not really widely known outside the family, or so we thought. So I, I want to pick up on that. We'll take a break in a few minutes, and I want to ask you about the the other places this manuscript has turned up or people have heard of it. But uh, Julianne, John Wesley Bone was your great grandfather, and you were from uh, North Carolina. Uh, yes. David, what, what about your background? Uh, I, I was born in Boston, and born in, and, uh, uh, and I have a degree in, uh, in journalism, worked for the Boston Globe for 30 years, uh, always a great interest in history and Civil War history. Married Julianne uh, when, we were, uh, when we were quite young. We, we met here in Boston in college uh, and always knew about this story and always was fascinated by it. And it was just a couple of years ago that Julianne proposed the idea of bringing it to a wider audience and doing the extra work, research, and annotation that would be necessary to do that. But my, my background is beyond journalism. I have a degree in literary editing, textual editing, annotation, and research into manuscripts. So it all seemed her story, uh, her family history, and what I've learned, that it sort of seemed like a fortuitous way to combine our gifts and our and our knowledge and put this together. Well, that, that is one of the remarkable things about this. I mentioned at the beginning, sometimes uh, professional historians come across these things in an archive and they edit it. And then sometimes you have uh, uh, families or uh, amateur historians who, who want to publish, you know, people want to publish their family 
history, but are not trained, and so they you get the content, but not much annotation or explanation. And this is an exception. This really is uh, extremely well edited and annotated. Uh, it, just very briefly before we take a break, uh, David, what did you do uh, at the Boston Globe? Uh, well, I did many things over 30 years, but over the last um, almost 20 years of the paper, part of that time I was the book review editor, put out the book section. And then in the last oh, dozen years, or I should say about 10 years of the paper, I was the writer on books, authors, and publishing. I did essentially author interviews and uh, book-related stories of every kind. So now you're on the, the other end of that. I ask that because, um, as listeners to the show know, I never miss an opportunity to let our listeners know that I have a degree from that school in Cambridge, uh, got my doctorate at Harvard, and I try to get some value from it by mentioning it on every program, if possible. Uh, and so you gave me a welcome opportunity to do yeah, that. I must have read your reviews many times back in the 90s when I was there, uh, and we subscribed to the Globe. Well, we're going to take a short break. We will come back in just a minute. We're talking this evening with Julianne Mahegan and David Mahegan, author, editors of Record of a Soldier in the Late War, the Confederate Memoir of John Wesley Bone. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Julianne Mahegan and David Mahegan, editors of the Confederate Memoir of John Wesley Bone. He was a private in the 30th North Carolina Regiment. The title uh, of the published memoir is Record of a Soldier in the Late War. And we learned in the first segment that uh, the soldier wrote this 
in the early 20th century, uh, at a time he thought he might be approaching the end of his life, turned out he wasn't, lived a long time after, uh, and the manuscript survived, handwritten manuscript survived long enough to be typewritten uh, at least twice, and those typescripts survive. And it's from those typescripts that David and Julianne have produced the uh, book that we have now. Uh, Julianne, tell us a little bit about uh, about John Wesley Bone's introduction to military life. What what brought him to enlist? Where, where did he go? How did that start out for him? Well, he was 18 when he enlist, enlisted as a private in the North Carolina 30th Regiment. Uh, he says in the memoir... Things were getting hot, and I could see the South was in earnest. And that motivated him to enlist. He was then sent to Wilmington, North Carolina, and he writes of his experience arriving there on a Sunday morning about 9 o'clock. We pulled into Wilmington, got off under a big car shed at the bank of the Cape Fear River, This was our first time with all the regiment. We were sleepy, tired, and hungry, and were off to war. We wanted to fight, and the enemy not being very near, some did fight one another. So they, uh, the the innocence of those first days really comes through in this. Uh, You mentioned he said they went to war because the Confederacy was in earnest. There's not much discussion beyond that of, of ideology or politics or, or motivation in this, this memoir, is there? That's right. He never talks about the cause. He never says that he has this uh, grand um, mission to uh, save the Confederacy or preserve the um, economy of the South. Um, he's just going forward, doing what to him was his duty. There's an interesting contrast. Uh, you you compare his writing to that of another, uh, to an officer in his regiment who's much more of a, a fire and brimstone Confederate patriot. Yeah. Well, John Wesley is a is a quiet country boy. Um, he's literate probably went through what we would think of as perhaps the perhaps the sixth grade or so, writes well, has a very plain style. Um, uh, the officer, uh, 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 Colonel Parker, Francis Marion mm-hmm. Parker of the, of the 30th Regiment commander, was a fiery Confederate nationalist um, and uh, a, a, a substantial slaveholder who was very clear on, on his his purpose was in the war to preserve the Southern way of life and to preserve the economy and preserve other, to preserve Southern independence. And at one point he says in a letter, let us pray that we may annihilate the invading devils. So I have perfect confidence that this will be done. John Wesley's approach is very different. He's just a soldier talking about what happened to him. He's extremely religious. He doesn't seem to have any rancor toward the enemy. Never mentions slavery. And his way of describing things is very plain and doesn't have any of the kind of flowery romantic language that you sometimes see in memoirs written by officers or generals. It, it is striking how, uh, how straightforward it is. Now, he wrote this around 1900, uh, so it's it's not contemporary with the events he's describing. 
but it doesn't fit with the uh, the kind of work that uh, David Blight and others have written about in Race and Reunion. Uh, the idea of a, a sort of Confederate resurgence uh, based on, on a political uh, interpretation of the war that takes place in the early 20th, late 19th century. Uh, his, his, he's just just telling his story. Uh, it, 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 is, it has a, a powerful effect when you read it. It has. There's that portion at the beginning um, where he says, um, it will not be about um, grand and glorious adventures. It'll just be a matter of going forward, taking and bearing the realities of war. Um, it does have almost a 20th century plainness about it. Uh, no romance. This is what happened to me. And it is certainly not in any way an apologia for the cause. It's um, And uh, he's just... In fact, toward the very end, after the surrender at Appomattox, where he where he was, which he experienced, he speaks of the uh, of the enemy really in very mild and very uh, and very generous terms. He says we visited one another's camps. He talks about how little food they were given by the by the Union side after the surrender. But he says I imagine they gave what they could. They didn't have that much for themselves. So he's a, a person of a um, very mild and generous nature, really a very appealing character. And it's all about this is what it was like to be a soldier. It really isn't about the cause, the movement, uh, the southern, the southern uh, point of view. One of the interesting things about this, uh, as you note in the introduction, and it certainly shows up when you read it, is he does not name names. You find out what generals he's fighting, and you can follow the career of the 30th, and he's accurate in describing the battles he's in and and the wounds he suffers and so on. But he never, almost never mentions anyone else in the regiment. Why do you suppose he he did wrote that way? Well, I don't know if he really knew the names of the people that he was... uh, uh, fighting with, uh, he he may have um, been, um, you know, just just with people that he maybe just knew a first name for, or just didn't remember the names um, after all those years. Um, that it, they just didn't make an impression on him, um, maybe at the time, and then all those years later. Um, he he didn't uh, remember those names. There's that, uh, and it also seems to me possible that he was trying to be simply considerate of the feelings of the families. Now, this was 40 years later, so you might wonder whether that would be necessary. But I know that other memoirists, um, soldier memoirists, have not wanted to mention the names of soldiers who were killed, soldiers who suffered terribly, because they didn't want to increase the pains of the members of the families who might read it. Uh, there might have just been a sense of his wanting to consider the privacy. But it is sort of striking that uh, uh, almost no one else is named except for officers. But he, he must have had a reason. He, must have, he, he As Julianne says, he may have simply not remembered many of them after all those years. I, that does seem possible. Uh, he When he's talking about the end of the war and he uh describes uh, the, the soldiers saying goodbye to one another, remember how we laid and bled together on the battlefield or side by side in the hospital or through the cold winter in some prison. And then he writes, 
many of us have not seen or heard from each other since that morning, that that day in 1865 when they surrender and they bid farewell to these close comrades, they don't see each other ever again. So it's conceivable they couldn't. On the other hand, early in the war, he describes the death of, of by from sickness of one of his childhood friends. Surely he knew that person's name. So maybe that was a privacy issue. That seems possible to me. Um, my, my class, he was my playmate, he says, my playmate, mm-hmm. my classmate. Um, maybe just, there was a sense of reticence, a sense of almost Victorian reticence and uh, wanted to consider people's feelings. He was clearly a person who was very considerate about people's feelings. So let's talk more about his experiences in the war. He, uh, he, he sees a fair number of battles. Yes, he was at Malvern Hill, Chancellorsville, Fredericksburg, the Wilderness, Cedar Creek, Spotsylvania Courthouse, and of course at Appomattox at the end. And he of Petersburg as well. And and he doesn't emerge unscathed from all of these. One one of the other striking things about this is uh, all the the wounds he suffers. Yes, he had, um, as as we now know, sickness and um, injury were as as dangerous and uh, uh, as being in battle and being um, in combat and being being killed by the enemy. Um, many many uh, uh, soldiers on both sides died of sickness. And John Wesley certainly had his share of that. He had um, pleurisy and diphtheria, and he was in and out of the hospital. He missed Gettysburg because he was sick and fell behind the army. He missed Antietam. Uh, so he missed out on some of the battles that he might not have survived because he was sick. He was actually shot at Spotsylvania Courthouse. Uh, the bullet passed through his upper uh, chest and lodged in his backpack. We have the bullet. He sat between the lines of fire for three days, um, managed to get back finally behind the Confederate line and be rescued, and was ultimately taken to Gordonsville Hospital, where he recovered and was furloughed home. But he went back. He was back with the unit only five months later, which is one of the most extraordinary things. After such a catastrophic injury, he went back. And not only did he go back, but he had to, when he got to the end of the railhead, where he was trying to return to his unit, he had to walk 80 miles to catch up to the regiment near Cedar Creek, just in time for that disaster at Cedar Creek. And, and as you note in your, your annotations, uh, desertion was very common. Uh, North Carolina troops didn't have far to go to get back to their families. And late in the war, when uh, Sherman's army is approaching from the south and families are writing to the soldiers, come home and defend the home for us, uh, desertion was extremely common. And he, this soldier had every opportunity and perhaps every justification to say he had done his duty and to go home. Uh, but he didn't. He didn't. He stays to the end. That, that is one of the remarkable things about him, was that he was, he had such a kind of a simple, direct, relentless sense of duty. 
never, um, who knows whether he had thoughts of, of deserting. He might have had such thoughts, but he was sort of uh, constant in that, in that sense of doing his duty, um, uh, right to the end. In fact, he says, at the very end, after, when they first learned that Lee has surrendered, he says, some, of us, some said that we might should have surrendered earlier, but then others would have said that we had not done all we could. So that sense of having to do all you can seems to have been just a powerful motivating force in him. So it just goes to show that though he was a country boy, he had extraordinary character, really an admirable character. He he does come across that way, not not again in a self-aggrandizing way, but he uh, from from all the wounds and other things he suffers. Uh, Sickness, as uh, Julianne, as you point out, uh, that was more dangerous than battle for a lot of people, and he suffered uh, repeatedly. What kind of research did you do to look at, to, to find out what happened to him specifically in terms of, of either illness or wounds? Well, we um, did research in several places. We went to Gordonsville Hospital. Uh, we went to the Museum of the Confederacy. Um, we used um, a number of um, libraries, Library of Congress records. Um, the, his, um, we have copies of his, um, some of his discharge and uh, furlough notices. Um, but we were able to, for example, at Gordonsville, um, at the Museum of the Confederacy, where they have the records uh, from the admissions at Gordonsville Hospital, we were able to look up, we, we had a sense from the memoir of about what the date was that he went to Gordonsville after he was um, um, uh, wounded. And sure enough, there in the, in the ledger of the handwritten ledger of people that were being admitted is John Bone. And so we were able to verify the accuracy of his own account with the records in various institutions. This this also allowed us to kind of clarify what happened to him, because what he says in the instance where he was taken to Gordonsville, Gordonsville, Virginia, he says, I was taken with uh, stricken with brain fever. Well, this is a general term at the time. They didn't, you know, there was, it was fever in the head. That's all they knew. Well, but when you look at the record book to see what was the cause of admission, the notation is feverous inter, that is intermittent fever, which, not, which means fever up and down and up and down, which is now believed to have been malaria. And I think not that widely known that malaria was one of the great killers of the Civil War. We tend to think of typhoid and other things, but malaria was a terrible killer, and because it did not confer any immunity, you could get it again and again. So they filled him with quinine and put ice on his head and managed to get him through that sickness. But going to the record book just to see exactly what was he admitted for was so chilling and fascinating and touching. It is uh, it is rewarding when you are hunting for a particular uh, piece of information uh, about a Civil War figure or any historical figure, and and you're able to find it. It's not not always a quest that is rewarded, but it's it's great when it is. Uh, and and as you point out, 
this happened to him more than once. Uh, he, he was wounded in the hand, I think, at Malvern Hill. And uh, again, there's a record of uh, gunshot wound to hand. Uh, uh, to, to, he, the fact that he missed those battles at Antietam and Gettysburg, on the one hand, might lead one to think, wow, this, this, this guy dodged uh, all the really bad times. But then when you see how many times he suffered from injury or from uh, uh, illness in between, you realize he did indeed uh, uh, pay a heavy price for his devotion to uh, the Confederate Army and the, the uh, Confederacy. Well, we're going to take another short break. We'll come back and talk more about this really fascinating uh, old but newly published memoir. It's called Record of a Soldier in the Late War, the Confederate Memoir of John Wesley Bone, edited by our guests tonight, Julianne Mahegan and David Mahegan. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Julianne Mahegan and David Mahegan authors or editors, I should say, of Record of a Soldier in the Late War, the Confederate memoir of John Wesley Bone. Uh, Bone was an infantryman in the 30th North Carolina Regiment, served throughout the war from the beginning to the end practically, wounded more than once, very sick more than once, fought in major battles, Malvern Hill, Chancellorsville, uh, Spotsylvania, others, and uh, wrote in uh, the early 20th century a memoir, an account of his service that has now emerged from private hands. Uh, 
uh, from the the Bone family. He was the great grandfather of Julianne Mahegan, and is now available for you to read in this uh, very nicely produced uh, paperback edition. It is illustrated and especially it is annotated uh, very well in a way that uh, sometimes sort of home-found memoirs are not. Uh, as we were discussing in the first segment, uh, one of the editors, David Mahegan, has training as a uh, documentary uh, editor and uh, has produced something that really uh, tells us a lot about uh, what's happening uh, about what these terms mean. Uh, and uh, let me ask you both about this, the, the editing and annotating process. It's really a challenge, it seems to me, to annotate something like this appropriately. If you uh, put a footnote next to the Bones mention of Robert E. Lee and say Robert E. Lee was a Confederate general, that does us no good because no one's going to pick up this book who doesn't already know who Robert E. Lee was. So you have to decide you know, at what level do you put your annotations? Uh, how much detail do you go into? And it seems to me you hit it just right for this audience, uh, those of us who are already interested in, and have read a few books on the Civil War. Well, I think we um, approached that by going through the memoir and looking at uh, people and places and events and cultural references and deciding what needed to be uh, footnoted. We made uh, many uh, spreadsheets of, uh, the, of how we were going to approach it. And then we sort of divided up the things that needed to be, uh, that we, we felt needed to have footnotes. And each of us worked on different things uh, in, in that context. But I think uh, one of the uh, more, uh, some of the most interesting ones have to do with uh, cultural things. Uh, in, in one story that he's telling, he talks about a family uh, not having, that their uh, flour was low in the gum, G-U-M. And we mm-hmm. puzzled and puzzled over what that could mean. And ultimately, uh, through a, a friend who had a dictionary of Southern lore, um, discovered that it was uh, common to take a gum tree or tupelo tree and cut a, a piece of the trunk and scoop it out and use it like a canister to store flour. So that was a kind of a cultural footnote that we were able to add to explain something that that uh, hardly anyone would know what meant otherwise. I, I think that the fact that we were not actually Civil War historians, not historians at all, both of us have training in journalism originally. We met yes. in journalism school, I should say. The fact that we were not professional historians meant that we were able to approach it as if we were curious readers and ask point by point, moment by moment, incident by incident, what is really going on here? What really happened here, using other sources, when he talks about brain fever, finding out what, trying to find out what brain fever was. Um, so we were just, uh, we had the, uh, the luxury, or I should say, the pleasure of being able to just pursue it as curious researchers. What is he trying to say and what was going on here? When I first heard the story, 
um, 40 years ago, heard about it, I should say, and learned how, how often he was sick. You know, you'd think, first of all, well, that isn't very interesting. We all want to, we want, read, want to read more dramatic stories of battles. But as you begin to dig into it and realize how pervasive sickness was and how it killed many more soldiers than battle did and how frightened of disease young men were, that becomes actually much more dramatic. And he does tell about his hospitalizations almost as if it were a charge at Malvern Hill. So these are things that we discovered. And when you do that, you, you approach it as, an, as a student, really, and then try to share what you've learned with the readers. It makes it, I think it gives it a little bit more freshness than it would if we were experts writing just for other experts. Well, I, I, the technique works. I, it's also much appreciated that in the annotations you cite uh, contemporary uh, secondary sources that, that support what you're describing and, and uh, it gives confidence to the reader that this is a well-researched uh, set of annotations and uh, tells us a lot about what's going on. One other interesting facet of, of Bone's career is his, uh, his comments on religion. He brings that up on a, a number of occasions. Uh, what can you comment on that? Well, I think he was certainly a, a very um, a religious person in the sense of of how uh, his family was uh, was brought up. Uh, reading from the Bible was uh, one of the main uh, books that that you had. Um, my grandfather read from the Bible every single night, um, and uh, which I, I can remember that quite vividly. And so he learned that from his father, John Wesley Bone, and I'm sure that that the Bible and the the um, the stories of the Bible and the um, the sense of being in God's hands. And being uh, uh, being in in the um, you know feeling like the divine or that you are being being cared for, being brought through a difficult situation by some higher higher um, power uh, was very much a part of his upbringing and uh, his experience his life as he went through this war. I think it lended to him a certain kind of uh, spiritual drama, too. For example, when he's lying on the battlefield at Spotsylvania after the third night, he thinks, I've got, I know if I don't get away, I'm going to be captured. So he says, I, then I turned to the higher power and asked him to help me get away. And then he lays, he waits for the moon to go down at about 5 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning, that May morning. Uh, of 1864, when the moon goes down, then he tries to get up and move and stagger back with a stick, manages to succeed. But all along, he sees it as sort of the Lord's protection and the Lord's um, uh, uh, supervision of of his fate. He never seems to regard the cause as being God's own. Unlike many others, Colonel Parker seems to regard Confederate cause as God's own cause. John Wesley doesn't really treat it that way. It's more like almost the, the, 
the sound of the psalmist, you know, Lord, take care of me. I, my enemies are circling around me. I cast my, my fate on your hands. And so there is quite a touching sense of his being not ever entirely alone and a way in which it really does strengthen him. He says that quite often. That he couldn't have gotten through without the Lord's help. Now, he he also comments on the revivals in Lee's army that that periodically he talks about preachers, he talks about chaplains. Among the few people he names by name are, are chaplains. And he then notes uh, in, in a number of cases there would be a group of men who would be converted in one of these revivals, and then many of them would die in the next battle. And he doesn't comment on this ironically. He doesn't even seem to... Uh, sort of register, he just, just observes it, uh, that it might not be a good bet to convert if, if your goal is to survive the war. It's almost as if the drama is not the war, but the drama of salvation in his mind. Mm. The conversion, you know, is, uh, is sort mm-hmm. of the bigger issue, not, not your fate on the battlefield. The When we get to the end of the war, uh, it, he reminds the reader that at Appomattox, they still didn't see this as the end of the war. They didn't realize uh, uh, you know, how close to surrender the army was. And it, it's very hard for us as readers today, you know, knowing how it ends, we, we sense what's about to happen. But he points out they didn't know that. Uh, and he points out even within a few months of the end of the war, they were still hoping for intervention from France. They were still maintaining this... Uh, this hope that kept them going. And I found that an interesting uh, aspect of this memoir. Yes, he does uh, He does say that. And um, he also says, when they were first told that Lee had surrendered, we didn't believe it. The idea that they could surrender was almost unbelievable to them because they had gone on relentlessly fighting and marching and fighting and marching. You do wonder what they thought they ultimate outcome was going to be, because he does say it that near to that point that it was, it was plain that the cause was hopeless. And yet still, when they learned that they were surrendering, they found that hard to believe. So there was just that sense of um, kind of relentless carrying on, you know, just keeping, keep on keeping on as long as they were asked to do so, which is uh, so remarkable. Now, at the beginning of the show, you mentioned uh, that this was a memoir that was you know, unknown to the outside world, outside the Bone family, uh, or or so you thought. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, we always thought that the copy that we had was the only copy. Uh, in 1992, we went on a trip to Virginia with our children taking John Wesley's memoir to visit the battlefields and um, sort of see the places that he was and to to learn something uh, more about those places. And when we were at Appomattox, we were listening to a program that had excerpts uh, from Union and Confederate soldiers. And as we listened to this program, we recognized some of the narration as being exactly John Wesley Bone's words. We found out then from the National Park Service that they had used uh, material from the North Carolina uh, Department of Archives. 
and contacting them, discovered that, in fact, in 1920, the United Daughters of the Confederacy had collected memoirs from living Confederate veterans and placed them in the North Carolina archives. So the, that was the, the handwritten memoir was first transcribed into a typed copy around 1918, 1919, and placed in the North Carolina archives in 1920. So we went to, I went to the archives uh, when we began this project and made a copy of the, this typescript that is there. And it, it is definitely different from the one that the family had. And we knew the story of how that, that one came into being. So we were able to see that there were two different uh, transcriptions of, of the original, and we read those together um, to verify that, them, and they are virtually identical. So we were, that gave further credibility to the fact that the memoir was uh, accurate to the handwritten original. We, we also subsequently discovered that the Bone story was not unknown to historians at, uh, at the uh, Fredericksburg uh, Chancellorsville National Historic Site. The historians there knew of it. Uh, yes, we, 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 we know about the Bone account. And you will see now and then a footnote in scholarly works about battles. You'll see a reference to the Bone account. So it's always, it has been there available to historians who wanted to go to the archives and read it as a source account. Mm-hmm. It was our feeling that it deserved to be not just a source account, but a story, um, a story on its own, a, a book on its own. Well, it really is uh, a fascinating book. That must have been quite a moment at Appomattox to hear the words and say, I know that guy. Uh, oh, <laughs> I, I recognize well, that. Well, what's fascinating about it, Jerry, is that these were actors. It was a film, and they were Union and they were, you know actors who were playing mm-hmm. the Confederates and Union soldiers. And of course, the Southern soldiers had Southern accents. And here was this voice, voicing these words that were so familiar to us. And I think Julie and I, I think it's fair to say both of us are sort of the hair stood up on the back of our necks when we heard this voice speaking these familiar words. Right. And we thought okay. then, I, I thought, wow, this is really much more important than I, I ever realized. And so I, I thought, I need, to, I need to do something more with this. So at the time, I um, worked for a company uh, in the digital imaging industry in, in the early 1990s, and I had access to a high-speed scanner. So I took the typed copy into the office and had, um, had them scan it into a digital file. So that's how the typed copy became an electronic document that we could edit. And it also, um, because it was scanned, it wasn't retyped by someone. We knew that new errors couldn't have been introduced in, in that digital uh, copy. Um, well, that that but, is certainly, I, I apologize for interrupting, but unfortunately we're out of time already. 
uh, and we have to clear the air for the next show. So I will leave this to our readers, to our listeners, to get a copy of Record of a Soldier in the Late War, the Confederate memoir of John Wesley Bone, uh, published by Chinkapin Publishers, edited by Julianne Mahegan and David Mahegan, uh, a really interesting and really well-annotated and edited memoir that uh, you will enjoy. Uh, I've enjoyed talking with you both, Julianne and David. Thank you for being on the show. Thank, thank you, Jerry. Good night. And, Good night. And listeners... Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.